Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Hub Culture Chronicles. This time coming to you from Egypt, Sharm el Sheikh at COP27, the UN Climate Change Conference, the 27th in fact, where everyone has gathered to talk about the biggest issue of our time, which is really climate change and the effects it has on our society and the planet itself. Joining us today is a group of people to talk about some of the ways that we can solve for climate change using technology, and in particular, the subject of tokenization. What is tokenization? Tokenization is sort of like applying a digital identity to a thing or even an idea and giving it a home on the internet, making it tradable, making it an asset that can be really grown, changed, traded, and used in different ways. So this conversation with these people is gonna get us into the weeds of tokenization and how tokenization could effectively change the arc of climate change. So joining us today are a number of different people. Let's go around and welcome everybody and give us a, a quick sense of who you are with a couple of sentences and then we will jump in to the conversation. Let's start with you, Brian. Hey, I'm Brian Talaby. I'm the CEO of Afura AI, where we invent the tech that enables people to learn three to five times faster than traditional education. And we are pointing this technology at a couple of verticals, but one of them is to train climate workers to provide the labor necessary to solve these existential risk issues around climate that we face. Great. Hi, I'm Neil Cohn. I'm a co-founder of Code Green. We're building the um, kind of the pre-competitive uh, infrastructure, digital infrastructure for, for climate markets and, and to help really address the climate crisis. Okay. My name is Benoit Clement. I'm Vera's Director of Financial Innovations. We are developing financial products and market strategies to scale investment in climate action and sustainable development. Welcome. Hi, I'm Duncan Murray, I'm the CEO of Aniseed. Uh, we are working projects on the ground to establish ways that they can use funded technologies such as tokenization uh, to help provide funding for the projects they're doing. Hi, my name is Brian. I'm the CEO at VAST. What we do at VAST is we are trying to get Africa to participate in the carbon markets more inclusively. And what we do is we offer a platform where we can be able to trade high quality African source carbon credits. And we are trying to use tokenization as a tool to do that. Very happy to be here. All right, thank you. Uh, my partner Brian did a very good introduction uh, for the company. But for myself, I'm, the, I'm Evans Kayo. I'm uh, the CEO of uh, VAST Carbon. Thank you very much. Great. Well, welcome. It's great to have you all here. We're going to dive into this subject of tokenization. Um, Neil, you have been in the carbon markets longer than almost anyone, and you've seen the evolution of the industry. What's happening now in terms of this space? And how do you see tokenization potentially affecting what is an incredibly fragmented market? Carbon climate finance has been around um, since since before the Kyoto Protocol, actually. Kyoto Protocol in 1997, when that, that was initially inked, was kind of the starting line for real climate finance and um, mechanisms that had tradable off you know, credits. There has been a lot that's been done in the last 30 years and, mm -hmm. and quite a lot of activity actually in, in the Kyoto period on what was called clean development mechanism. Where, and, and at that period, I think everybody was investing and it was pretty clear invest in projects. The competition was about projects. In this new iteration of carbon markets, which is almost like carbon 3.0, and really fitting with Web 3.0, I think we've 
seen technology take this massive role. And it should be an incredibly enabling technology. Should, the technology should help on all parts, really all the way from creation, monitoring, verification, to, to um, issuance, transactions, retirement. However, I think unfortunately what's happened is this um, technology and, and, and kind of the digital industry, which is I think a much younger industry in some ways, has affected the carbon industry because there has been a feudalistic approach that has now been overlaid on top of the carbon markets that has um, confused and complicated the market a bit. You know, and, and that I think is, is now a, uh, a bit of an impasse. Is it an existential threat? It's a, absolutely a huge existential threat. What it's doing is we're facing the crisis, the challenge of our generation. We cannot wait anymore. We've gone through, I mean, God, I don't know if anyone here has saw Mia Motley and her incredible address in the opening ceremony, uh, uh, call for action. And, and, you know, I know I have three kids and, and I'm serious about this. And yet you look at what is happening with some companies and look at everyone comes to the game with the tools they have. And if I'm talking too long, Stan, you can cut me off. But we all come with what we have, right? So if I've got a technology, I'm going to bring it to the table. If I've got, you know, I'm a bank, I'm going to bring that, you know, my tool to the table. That's okay. But when you work on it in a way that is, is competitive on just the, the pathway, right? We all know we need to get to another place. We all need to get to a, a, these solutions. But what we're doing is we're fighting over what mode of transportation, what car we're going to get into, what, what, whatever we're going to get to. And it's stalling the process. It's, it's, it's stopping some investment from coming in. And, and why I started Code Green as a nonprofit was I want to start to find, and I, actually I think we have some ways now, to enable more compatibility and, 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 and collaboration where different paths can work together. So we stop that part of it. We need to get past this. Duncan, you, you echoed that a minute ago. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I mean, one of the first things that struck me uh, when I went into the Blue Zone on day one was how there were just so many fragmented individual, everything from government bodies to technology companies saying, we're doing this, we're doing that. Uh, I, I strongly agree with everything that was just said. I think it's a combination of a number of different technologies. A few years ago, everyone was saying that everything can be done on the blockchain. Um, which, you know, as we know, is, isn't true. I mean, blockchain is very good um, for accessibility and transparency, but you also need to overlay big data, AI, and a number of other aspects into that. And if that converges into one technology, one platform, that's fantastic. Um, the other thing that struck me when I walked around the Blue Zone being totally blunt about it was the difference I saw of what people were saying, what they were actually doing. Um, for example, I had a very long conversation with the Congo Forestry Commission uh, about you know, the, the, the forest there, but they have put for sale very large parts of the Congo forest to an oil company. Uh, and, and to your point, there has to be another way that that funding can be sourced, that we can help. I mean, their technology can help save that forest. It does not have to be given, or not given, sold to a logging company, or in this case, an oil company. You know, I think it was 11 million hectares they were selling off in plots. And I think the tenders are due in, in January. But you can't, you can't come here and say you're committed to saving the rainforest whilst at the same time destroying a third of one of the most crucial regions. So 
those were the two things that struck me, how fragmented it was and how what people were saying and doing were, were not necessarily in sync. There is, but the final point I'd make is there is technology, there is funding, investment, I think, readily available. I think it just, there has to be a way, there has to be avenues that it's able to find the right people. There's also this meta question, you know, in that specific example, like, why does it need to be sold in the first place? You know, if it's meant to be a common good that's yeah. maintained for the benefit of the people of the country, why is it even up for sale? That's another question, but... In the case of, of Congo, the DRC, they, you know, first of all, DRC is, is, is Africa's Africa. I mean, it is, it is, it is a, a difficult place to work. And, and the funding is needed. And I, and I know that situation extremely well. There was never any intention, truthfully, to sell that to a carbon company. I, I believe all of that was just a bit of a smokescreen. Okay, they, they absolutely wanted the, the, the oil royalties and, and they need the revenues and that was always the intention. So, you know, I think you know, some, some carbon, some companies rode that. I completely agree. I just, I just think that there's, you know, the oil royalties could be replaced with alternate revenue that keeps the forest intact but still provides the government body or the Forestry Commission with the revenue they're seeking. Which is obviously why. Well, the revenues, I mean, the carbon markets aren't able to match the revenue, which is part of the problem. It's like one to a thousand, if you look at the actual numbers, if you're lucky. However, there are arguments that would say if you can even just move the existing forest to the forest to the positive side of the balance sheet, you're doing something, and and sometimes that can be enough to actually turn it into a net positive asset versus a net positive or a net negative liability. And I think that crucial balance is a very important first step because right now it's sort of zero value if you're just leaving the forest. And if you can, this is why tokenization, and this is why tokenization is like potentially a really important step here because if you could say tokenize large swaths of that forest and just get a little bit of a payment or a little bit of value created, it's enough to tip that forest into the positive side of the balance sheet so it's suddenly an asset. And then if it's an asset, there's a lot of things you can do with it in the financial markets. It's got to be an action taken. You can't just go and say, I'm going to get paid because there's a forest there. That doesn't do anything. No one's going to protect that forest. There's no reason for that payment. Then you end up not paying for things that actually are actions. Well, I don't know if you're thinking... There's, only a, there's only a finite amount of money out there. I agree, but I think, I think that if we, we, there's a chance for us to think a little bit bigger and broader about the externality benefits that a forest like that provides find some way to build value for it through tokenization, even if it's a small amount of value, so that you're tipping it on the balance sheet. I know that that's not the way the world works right it's now. It's a new layer, right? Yeah, so if you want to pay totally for that, that's layer. different. That's like the loss, in, you know, that, that's a different payment system. But if you, you do that and say, look, I'm gonna get paid for forests, and I'm gonna use those credits to, to hit my carbon, you know, my targets, right? Then all the money that could be going to, to genuine actions that are gonna change our planet, right? those won't go because the money is going to just pay for forests that are sitting there already. So, so Stan, what it does is it, it might divert money that we need elsewhere. And that's my biggest fear. I don't, I'm not trying to say, okay, I'm hearing you down, there, but if we, if we just say status quo is great, let's just pay everybody and keep everything exactly where it is. We're going off that cliff. If that forest is going to be cut down though, then that money is saving. That's a yeah. massive but, mitigation. But prove that it's going to be cut down and prove that you're taking actual actions to protect it. That's, that's different Agreed. than what we're talking about in, in some of the situations like Rainforest Alliance. And that, that's what we need to really define. Yeah. There are very, very valid forests that are being protected. 
and there are ones where we're just saying, pay me because I have forest. Yeah, and, and that's what, I mean, we're, we're trying to explore, this is exactly what we're doing at Annecy. We are looking to tokenize, although I'm not a huge fan of the, the word tokenize, the assets within an area that people would, um, you know, preserve, you know, whether that's trees, biodiversity, you know, the, the um, peatland within it. So then corporations can, you know, and users, because I think users are very disconnected from this whole, consumers, I should say, from this whole market. I mean, half of them, if you said, you know, how much is your carbon footprint? You know, they probably say a thousand tons a day or something, you know, they, they'd come up with farcical figures. But if you, if you gamify it, if you engage them with actually creating actual trees, scanning them, and then, you know, bringing it into a rewards program, getting people like Starbucks done with the Odyssey program, but that's obviously not anything to do with it. But if people can then engage in their blood, you then potentially have another revenue stream for areas, not necessarily as large as an oil company uh, will, will provide, granted, but there is possibilities. Brian, the, the one thing that I, you know, rather than new companies, startups coming and saying, we're going to define what is truly being protected, what's this, there's 30 years of work on this. There's organizations like Vera that have created very sophisticated analysis around what should qualify and what shouldn't qualify. And they've been the defenders of the integrity all the way through. The, the issue right now is you've got startups that come in and are saying, hey, we're going to tell you. It's, it's almost like, would you go to a heart surgeon that has degrees and 30 years of practice? Or would you go to somebody and say, hey, I've got, I've got a kitchen knife and, and I've watched a bunch of YouTube videos. I can fix you up. So I think we need to watch who should be the credible parties to actually have certain things. And this is where we go to decentralization. And I'm gonna say one thing that I've been preaching lately and I really believe it. Decentralization is amazing, but it doesn't mean that everybody can all of a sudden become, hey, I'm gonna be the authority because we're decentralized. Decentralization is about inclusion. It's not about disintermediation of the really critical infrastructure we've built. So Benoit, let's talk about this idea of verification because if we're going to tokenize, somebody has to verify. You guys are already verifying carbon credit projects. Can you give our audience a little bit of a view of like what it means to be verified by Vera? Yeah, so we've got a process where projects must submit descriptions. Um, there are auditors that are then working with them to validate the descriptions of these projects. There's then monitoring reports that need to be submitted over various lengths of time, depending on the project activity type. There's then a process of verification where auditors and the project developers will then submit reports to become eligible for having carbon credits being certified. Under our VCS, our Verified Carbon Standard Program, we have probably more than 70 methodologies right now. Most of the world's carbon credits come from maybe four or five methodologies in total, mostly focused on forests. It's a rigorous process. When we talk about some of the themes that are coming up here in this conversation, it feels almost like every week there's a new registry or a new startup that wants to create its own standards or methodologies. We currently hold about 70, 75% of the global market share right now. It's taken you know, a significant amount of time to earn the trust of the different players in the carbon markets to be able to sit in that kind of position. While there's a lot of really interesting technologies that are being explored by various startups to some of the points that have been made here, 
we're arguing about what kind of car we need to be taking to get to the final destination, which is addressing climate change. We don't necessarily need to have 5,000 more standards and 5,000 new registries. It's really just slowing down the whole process. These different companies, while they're exploring these new technologies, there's maybe certain things that they can do better than these older organizations that are currently standing in the market. And I think it's really about bringing our strengths to the table and finding ways to collaborate so we can all get in a single vehicle and accelerate that transition instead of trying to fight about how we're going to transition. Do you think um, one of the obstacles to participation in these markets is that the size of a project needs to be relatively large to cover the cost of doing all the work that you just described. It's really expensive to go and make sure that you're actually getting a quality project. So does Vera have a view about how to reduce the cost and scope of a project so that more of the world could participate? Yeah, there's explorations on how digitization can help alleviate some of those financial barriers. For example, we're going to be announcing some pilots in digital monitoring reporting and verification sometime between now and the beginning of next year. Uh, digital monitoring reporting and verification can potentially have a huge impact on the roles that these auditors will be playing on these projects moving forward. Being able to use remote sensing, satellite imagery, just the internet of things in general can accelerate a lot of data collection and transmission. Uh, we're also going to be digitizing about a dozen methodologies between now and the middle of next year, which also allows for these DMRV configurations to speak to these digitized methodologies and allow for validation and verification to happen at a much faster pace. For the audience, can you explain what a DMRV is? DMRV is Digital Monitoring Reporting and Verification. Right now, a lot of the validation and verification process is analogous or manual in nature. You have people having to perform various kinds of measurements in the field where there now exists or there has existed instruments that are being configured to report data to methodologies in a way that is compliant with the requirements of those methodologies to allow for certification to take place. So it's very likely that organizations that are focused on developing DMRV platforms, systems, or configurations that speak to the requirements of methodologies are going to be standing in a really good place to be able to accelerate a lot of that validation and verification process because a huge part of those financial barriers for projects getting off the ground has a lot to do with the auditing fees associated with those projects. They can range anywhere between twenty dollars to $80,000 on average, depending on the project activity type. And when we begin to digitize a lot of these processes, the manual labor, the time that it takes can be reduced significantly. And as technology continues to advance and certain kinds of instruments become cheaper to produce when they reach scale of production, that could also potentially unlock smaller project sizes to be able to embark on these kinds of things. Yeah. And to add on to what he said, because one of the challenges that we have faced when we've been uh, trying to talk to different project developers in the continent has been that main issue, where MRP has not quite well been digitized, and you find that the presence of the different registries are not that much within the continent, and this initiative you guys are driving with DMRV 
I feel will try and be inclusive because majority of the time why we have been left out of the carbon markets has, has been the lead time between all the verification that is needed for you to actually get accredited by a big body like Vera. And I think you own 97% of the African continent's uh, verification. I feel that initiative would be very helpful for us to at least get included and to speak more to the size because majority of the developers within the continent are usually of a very smaller size. So trying to find ways in which aggregation can come in and help so that then they can be included in the conversation. Uh, I feel that has been a main issue. And to go back to the conversation that was earlier talked about with the Congo Basin, the issue with that is there's been this narrative, not that it's founded, but it is a narrative nonetheless that goes on. It's we have participated very less in soiling the environment as it is right now as African. We've had conversations with guys from DRC. The argument usually is that right now you're telling us not to take this payout from oil companies while you guys have gotten to where you've been by using the resources that you have. So now when a person is coming and is able to pay up what we feel is the right value for us, we have no problem with that. So I, I feel the issue of every party collaborating together so that a platform can be provided for capital to come into the uh, continent to support initiatives such as that would be very important right now. And I feel these conversations and tokenization will potentially provide a solution for that. It has to be done in a way that is very necessary because I feel even uh, tokenization was tried out on your platform. It wasn't done really well. And you, you made a call for proposals for different players such as ourselves to figure out how we can participate around that. I feel globally, these initiatives should be supported because in as much as this is a new technology, we cannot come and say we are decent, as he had said, Neil had said decent, removing every person from the value chain and saying that they are not important to the conversation. It's just a matter of how do we work together. And I really like that initiative because it's been quite funny where the new guys on the blocks think that we can solve everything. Decentralization is a uh, solution to every other problem. But as Neil said, that is not going to exactly be true. It's a matter of how can we use that tool to collaborate with a certain agenda? And I feel that would be important, and that's why this conversation for us. And tokenization doesn't have to be decentralized. Yeah, it doesn't have to be decentralized. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. It's, it's really about, it's leveling the playing field. Yes, it is. Africa is the last continent that massive resources, that has, that has been left off the table for centuries, right? And has, and has had outsiders come in and, 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 and set up political situations that have been so destructive. So I've spent a lot of time working in Africa and it's upsetting because you see it and you know I've made efforts and, and it's bigger it's bigger than any one of us, that's for sure. It's bigger than any one of the countries either. But if we can find ways to use these technologies to level the playing field, to, to, to enable Africa to be empowered, but not to try to just create, but you know, start a collaboration. Let's get Vera to have more of an African presence. Let's get parties to be out there and do more things. I tell you, I'll volunteer and I'm working with DRC actually a little bit. I'm working with anyone I can help to find ways to actually bring, bring initiatives forward. Let's do it. And I think it is a valid comment. I mean, Europeans cut down 95% of their forests, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years ago to industrialize and... Yeah, so we're like, we cut all ours down, but now wait. Don't cut yours down because they're the last ones yeah, left. I mean, both sides are valid. Like, we need those forests. Yeah. Because if we cut, do cut those down, the planet is going to be in a big, yeah. big problem. So that is the reality. But there's also this economic side for the places where that is. And so you can see both sides of that situation. Absolutely. And I think going back to the decentralized question, I agree. I don't think the solution needs to be decentralized. I think you can take the positive elements of the technology, which are transparency, engagement, accessibility, 
and so on. It doesn't, the whole system doesn't necessarily have to be decentralized, but the advantages of a tokenization slash blockchain scenario brings other advantages. It doesn't necessarily have to be yeah. decentralized. And I think portability I, being one I of think, the major things. I think it's defining what decentralized means. Yes. Yeah. I think decentralized is key because you don't want one power. Like Kyoto could have been so much more impactful if it wasn't so centralized. It's I mean, more to inclusion, like you had said. I think how that word has been used synonymous. But it's just what defining what, what it means. Well, what the, it means yeah. the technology almost brings inclusion yeah. by the fact that it's all publicly available, it's all publicly accessible. Um, someone mentioned in one of the talks yesterday how inaccessible the carbon markets were, unless you're a huge corporate now. Um, but I agree. I mean, Vera is the standard. I mean, the, you know, these startups that are saying, and there's been quite a few in the last year or two saying, oh, you know, we do this, this, and this you know, with the tokens. I think trying to reinvent that is is crazy. I mean, it needs to be collaborative. And I feel part of the reasons why, at least from the conversations you've been having, where people are coming up with different methodologies, has been an expression of, can I say, frustration with the existing registries, yeah. saying that they feel that discussion has taken a bit of time for it to materialize. Mm -hmm. So you're finding them arguing that they're trying these other methodologies out on themselves for this conversation to start being driven. But I feel like these registries have been in existence for a reason. So it's, it's not a matter of kicking them out of the conversation, it's bringing out a collaborative approach where we can all come to the table and try and Yeah, they're, they're, they've been under-resourced and, and, and they've been um, overwhelmed by the very quick change, they're nonprofits. They, look, at, they're not completely, I'm sorry, they're not completely innocent in the process, but at the same time, Look, at, they're, they're trying. You get a guy like Benoit, you get some fresh blood to come in and say, hey, let's shake things up. That's been very beneficial. But also, but it has been hard. You so mentioned smaller holders. It is hard under the other, you know, the older technologies to, to, make, to make it inclusive for a very small holder, but new technology can enable that. Yes. So we've had a couple of people join us. Um, so uh, just to update, we're in the middle of a, a live podcast uh, episode around tokenization um, and climate change. So we've had three new guests join us. Um, why don't you guys just give us a quick introduction of who you are and who you're with, and then we'll slowly get you into the conversation. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, my name is Sergio Falavega, and uh, I represent a group of companies called Citizens Resources. Uh, we act in, uh, we are a traditional oil and gas company that converted into energy transition company. Today, we are in the space of electric mobility. We also provide with uh, charging solutions. And uh, we are here at COP27 promoting a marketplace for vehicles, infrastructure, and added services in the, in the field of uh, sustainable mobility. Can, can you repeat your name, the company? I'm sorry. Citizens Resources. Citizens. And where is that based? Uh, U.S. Okay. U.S., but we, oper we operate globally. Yeah, we've got um, three, three headquarters, uh, one for Latin America, Mexico, one for the U.S. in Boston, and Italy for Europe. Okay, great. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, hi, everyone. My name is Sven Hackman, and I, too, work for Citizens Resources part of uh, Sergio's organization, joined the organization a year and a half ago after knowing Sergio for many years as he was a pioneer actually in electric mobility with Formula E. Great to be with you. Great. We're doing some work with Formula E too. So. Good. Great. And Topher? Hi, I'm Topher uh, White from Rainforest Connection um, and Scriven. We're uh, based in San Francisco. One's a nonprofit, primarily focused on stopping deforestation 
mostly using acoustic technology and um, and then also trying to build a marketplace on biodiversity uh, measurement or at least data for biodiversity marketplaces. So I know Topher's work uh, fairly well. We were together at the hub in Southampton just a couple of uh, weeks ago, and his organization is quite amazing. They've managed to record millions and millions of pieces of data of, of sound from the rainforests, particularly in the Amazon, and been able to build this library and repository to begin training AI to recognize different sounds in the forest and link that to biodiversity, which actually is a great segue into perhaps the next part of our conversation. Not so much to do with electrification and mobility, maybe we can get into that in a moment, but looking at the idea of uh, biodiversity and tokenization. So the first part of this conversation has focused on uh, pot potentially the carbon markets becoming tokenized and the impact that that could have. And just to recap, uh, the kind of insight from that is that it might lower the barrier to entry for projects to be able to enter the carbon markets, which could drive you know, overall decarbonization or, or say carbon financialization. I'd love to circle back in a few minutes with you, Benoit, about the idea of carbon forwards, because that actually could be another mitigating factor to help drive the industry forward. Um, but let's switch over to biodiversity for a moment, now that Topher's here. Biodiversity and tokenization, and general forms of tokenization beyond carbon, seem to be the next big wave. You guys are working with the Rainforest Collective, which is a grouping of rainforest-based organizations. How is this group of organizations looking at tokenization beyond carbon? Maybe for social and human welfare, or like where do you see it going? Sure, so Rainforest Collective, which is uh, a new, I guess, collective of organizations, is really focused on trying to get funding to people on the ground. So primarily indigenous groups, uh, groups that <clears throat> can take on community-based projects to fight climate change or improve biodiversity or really improve livelihoods. Um, and it's based around the premise that uh, there isn't enough funding getting from the funders themselves down to the people on the ground uh, and to, you know, more or less use some of the more modern techniques that uh, tokenization and, and crypto represents to uh, make direct payments that can be tied back to um, uh, a slightly less stringent um, uh, administrative uh, needs around uh, reporting on how it's used. So that's what the collective uh, is, is largely about. It's just getting started. And I think that because, of, because it is sort of tied to a more relatable idea, which is the fact that people need money on the ground. There's people who would like to get it to them, uh, and lots of people in between who make it more difficult for all sorts of good reasons, but also ones that get in the way. But because that's sort of a more basic, frankly, old school idea, uh, there's an opportunity to achieve it, finally, after decades, if not centuries, of, of, uh, of that issue with some of the technology that's available. You know, if the powers that be would, would, uh, will, will go along with it, and if the funders can get on board with the new model for doing it. How, how open are Amazon-based communities to this idea of tokenization for the assets that they manage? Um, well, I think there's, there's an opportunity there in that a lot of the more rural communities, indigenous or not, um, are often on some systems of related to barter anyway. There's, there's some things you have to spend money on, like medicine, um, you know, fuel, things like that. But a lot of the rest is largely handled out by the community or, or through barter. And so um, one of the big... Questions that often gets you know asked is are we transferring stuff into fiat? Are they are they turning into fiat? But there is an opportunity for people to for communities on their own to innovate around um, on you know potentially using crypto as as a, as a very solid form of trade within their own communities. Isn't connectivity a big issue though? Like if you can't get an internet connection, you can't let alone download a wallet. 
Is it really practical yet? Uh, well, you know, those are things that, I mean, that would be an issue. But connectivity is one of those things that tends to solve itself, especially when there's money at stake. To answer that, uh, there's a company in Kenya that's trying to do that, where they're offering a crypto last mile solution mm -hmm. for on-ramping and off-ramping people on crypto. That right. doesn't require you to have internet connection. They use a USSD code. Hey. Sort of facilitate transactions such as that. So, when you ask about internet connectivity, that is, and as it said, it's very nice when the community is given an opportunity to innovate. So, that actually was a, a platform that was created where people are looking at how to remit money to communities that were trying to do initiatives in our slums in terms of volunteering, and then how the payment was coming to them. They innovated around that on the well, cellular network. Well, you guys are working in Kenya, yes. correct? So can you tell us a little bit about the situation in Kenya and what, what, what is the view on all of this from that perspective? All of this, like the carbon conversation? Well, I think even beyond carbon, but like how, how much, if at all, are people looking at this as a potential new source of... Uh, I would say that conversation is actually uh, very high. Like our president was here over the last two days coming to launch uh, an initiative called the African Climate Market Initiative. And in Kenya, he's been very big on uh, carbon participation, especially for our country and other countries. And he's the secretary for all the heads of states for Africa, for the commission that's driving this initiative. So in terms of the interest from our country, I can say that it is actually being driven quite hard by our president. And he's very committed to us driving that. And he established a couple of commitments and partnerships with different players to sort of drive that. And Air Carbon, I think, other guys are looking to partner to set up a carbon market uh, initiative for Africa. So back to Neil's point, are, are there too many marketplaces emerging that are fragmented? Is that your view, Neil? Do you think there needs to be one marketplace? Or like, I, I do don't think, think there needs to be one, and I think that we can look at a lot of decentralized marketplaces. I think DeFi makes sense if we can start to find ways to control it and, and make it regulatory compliant, which I think we can. I think that in any marketplace, um, buyers and sellers look for liquidity, and they tend to go to the, to the most active places. So you, 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 there could be a hundred marketplaces, but you're going to end up getting the very fast bulk of the volume in a couple in order to that that, well, that, that happens in any market. Yeah. You know, so, and to what he's saying, even how the crypto community did come, everyone was coming up with different initiatives. At the end of the day, the cream will come to the top, right? Yeah. I think it's, it's a support Sometimes for... the biggest marketplaces buy the the, their competitors. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean we just started, I'm making a little bit of an inference to last night. Um, FTX got bought up by That, was, <laughs> that, that was, happened uh, fast. What's that? Yeah. That happened fast, didn't it? Yeah, I guess it's not closed yet, but it's... Uh, I mean, the, the main thing, though, as we see, is that a marketplace needs to provide value. Yes. Right? And, and and how do you provide value? It's liquidity, it's ease of transaction, it's, it's all of the things that you're looking for. And the same as a registry needs to provide value, and all of us do. And, so, and actual financial markets like the LSE are also opening markets. So, you know, as you mentioned, people trade where there is the most liquidity and security. You know, so if, if major exchanges like the LSE, NASDAQ, and so on, they do open up these exchanges, then they will probably take over or hoover up the liquidity from the smaller ones. I mean, that tends to happen. different, because there's an asymmetry of, of, of um, reasoning for transactions, right? You're, yes. you're in Africa, and you're, you're looking to sell carbon to finance the projects that you're doing to move forward. Other parties are on the other side. They're looking to meet targets and to, to, you know, to, to move forward in that way. And that's one of the beauties, obviously, of markets. Markets wouldn't work if there wasn't asymmetry. Um, but, you know, that's why I, I think it's interesting if you have a market in Africa, 
uh, it wouldn't just be for Africans. You need to make sure that marketplace has connections to other other places. Yes, it, yes, it, yes, otherwise, yes. it's it's really illogical. Let's let's shift again gears um, now that we're in our car going to some <laughs> pathway of the future. Wes Geisenberger from HBAR Foundation has just joined us. Welcome, Wes. Let's talk about incentives. What is uh, HBAR doing to try to incentivize work around tokenization? I know that you guys have a new grant fund and you guys are actively trying to spur the development of climate-related technology at large. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you guys are doing to provide incentives for moving this, this bus forward? Yeah, and really excited to be here. So, so as part of these incentives, though, we're really focused on bringing the balance sheet of the planet to the public ledger. So when we think about tokenization, we think about a planetary balance sheet. We don't think about um, tokens as the only form of incentive. We actually think of them as a unit of account. And there's composable ways to work with that unit of account to incentivize positive creation of public goods, as well as accounting for our public liabilities or public debts and incenting people to move from the current state of you know how we emit different greenhouse gases to a regenerative state where we're working with not just the folks who have financial access but incentivizing folks who do have that financial access to work with folks who do not and opening up new opportunities for folks who do not to get access to these markets and what we ultimately want to do is enable a market that's built on auditability so we know the entire entire set of rules that we operate by in environmental accounting ecological accounting and understanding every single data point produced by all the different roles within known methodologies, understanding the actors who fulfill those roles and the data that they produce linked in an audible way to that specific asset. And we want to use the public ledger to make those assets discoverable. And so we create cryptographic links to all the specific data points. Um, we want to make sure that everyone can see that not just as data, but as information that's discoverable and ultimately driving liquidity to unique ecological assets. That's great. For our audience, can you give us a real-world example of what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So, Or could look like? 100%. So we have a few different projects out there, and more than a few, actually dozens now, that are working with this model. So you know, recently there was a Bloomberg article that cited um, uh, the Tamua Group, actually based out of um, Kenya. And they've announced um, that they're going to begin trading forwards. Um, those forward contracts are going to deliver verified credits through the traditional registry process, and they're following a known methodology. As part of that, those forwards represent an economic opportunity for farmers in rural Kenya and in the region of Kisumu. And what they're doing is they're taking um, the gas that otherwise would turn, basically produce significant amounts of methane through um, decomposing, and they're turning it into an alternative biofuel where the farmers allow the bagasse to be collected. The bagasse is collected turned into this biofuel. It's used in the process of tea drying in Kenya, where otherwise they would use wood. And it's actually you know, a quite auditable, provable reduction when you log all these pieces of information on Ledger following a known methodology. And that known methodology can produce tokens. And what it does is it's not just environmental data that's logged on the public Ledger following identifiers and credentials tied to these roles and actors, but it's actually creating a, a series of social equity data that can prove exactly how folks are getting paid. So when somebody raises money for a forward for these future credits, what you're getting is an audit trail that lives on Ledger. So you get the financial data of when I raise this money, where does it go to? What contractors, what parties who are working in the registry process, consultants, verifiers, validators. And you can see 
what portion of that asset is being paid to those parties. You can see what portion of the asset is going to financial players in the market. And you can also see what portion of those financial assets are going to the stakeholders. And what we can get to is an, a, a point of not just incentivization, but transparency to allow buyers to make decisions based on understanding the social equity of this financial flow. There's a nugget, Wes, in what you were just talking about, which I think extends out to a wider conversation about the sustainable development goals, the 17 SDGs, and this wider wave of tokenization that's coming. So one of the sub-trends that I've been hearing here at COP is that there could be a financial framework coming around the SDGs. You know, there's talk about actually effectively tokenizing action toward the SDGs. And one thing that I didn't know, I heard this from, from MasterCard the other day, was that within the 17 SDGs are targets. <clears throat> and then within these targets are, you know, a, a whole, there's like actually three layers of the SDGs. We tend to look at the 17 goals, but underneath that are other methodologies, you could say, that give us pathways to achieving the SDGs. And if we can start to formalize that, there might be a way to actually look at the wider, like tokenizing poverty, tokenizing access to water, tokenizing biodiversity. So is the system that you're talking about something that could be extended across all of these goals? Yeah, absolutely. And at the Sustainable Impact Fund at the HPAR Foundation, we're investing not just in applications. When we say invest, we're actually giving out grants for folks to build digital solutions to accomplish, accomplish these goals and, and ultimately build entire businesses um, and business models around achieving the, the various SDGs. But we invest in open source infrastructure as well as in large scale implementations of that infrastructure. Um, and we don't just invest in climate or renewable energy related SDGs, but we actually have invested in folks who are pursuing water rights trading. We've invested in folks who are, are pursuing different conservation or biodiversity goals. And, and this framework that, that we, we use is called the Guardian. It's something that we've invested millions of dollars in so it makes it easy for anyone to take a methodology where all the roles and actors are known. We understand what type of data is gonna be produced in the unit of outcome that's gonna be leveraged and tokenized. Um, the Guardian allows you to map that in a much shorter time frame than you otherwise would be able to in a digitized way. And it allows us to create analytical frameworks so that when we try to discover this information, we actually can see it within the context of the rules and we can extrapolate what potential values may come from it beyond in a carbon credit world additionality, durability, leakage, who the verifier is, what vintage it is, we can start to build attributes around social equity and prove every single aspect of it down to what accounts are getting paid and who owns those accounts on a public ledger. And that type of auditability, information discoverability, leads to improved price discovery um, when we introduce new types of tools, um, such as the automated regression market maker, which is something else we've invested in as a complement to the Guardian to understand how we can create an automated market and automated price discovery mechanism so that we actually can value what social equity looks like, what social impact looks like across not just carbon, but many SDGs, many co-benefits. So let's shift this over to energy because you guys are working toward energy. Do you see this as being helpful for the kind of business and the marketplaces that you're developing? I, I think everything comes together. We we're talking about uh, how uh, marketplaces, which are ultimate markets, right? operate and they're there to sit on the back of liquidity, right? So all these instruments create liquidity that allows you to, to kind of trade across the board. Now you can trade energy against rentability and I think that this creates a, a 
huge arbitrage to that. Yet, I have a concern because we're starting to reach out to communities that are very, I don't want to say under, underdeveloped, but they are not focused on finance, right? So while we are financial, bringing too much of financial power to communities that have more different life, right? So, I mean, how that's going to play out, I mean, you may have found in the Amazons. There are communities that are very reluctant to let these tools come into them, right? You know, and sometimes you wonder, hey, you're getting, you're getting money for health, you're getting money for food, and you are rejecting it. Well, we, they're, I don't think they're rejecting it. They're just trying to preserve their lives, right? So, but at the same time, I think all this financialization of uh, natural assets would be a great way to, to produce in the right incentives to minimize the use of fossil fuels, to replace them with other more, more uh, saving alternatives. There is, there is a big risk, though, in all of this, which I think is an even bigger risk, which is the what we might call a perverse incentive exactly. to short. And we saw this actually with rhinos this last couple of years because as the rhino populations have declined in Russia or sorry in, in Africa due to poaching, there has been evidence that in China essentially people started shorting rhinos in a in a kind of abstract way. Uh, and actually it accelerated the demise because rhino horns that were in storage would go up dramatically in value if rhinos went extinct. And so it actually created a terrible incentive. And so I think some people who exist in the world, I'm thinking particularly of my friend Esther Dyson, who once told me that not everything should be financialized. There is this like meta question about, is this actually a really dangerous trend to be trying to financialize nature? Because it actually creates potentially, you know, should nature even be a market? And it sort of points to some questions about what is actually a good society. Should some things be outside of the purview of the market, it feels like because of digitization, it's maybe already inevitable. So then the question might be, how do you prevent shorting in such a way that we don't actually end up having a, a, a series of incentives that, you know, we've seen, especially in crypto, how much damage a short can do. When we started trading emissions, so so it started in the U.S. with like SO2 and NOx, and I was involved with some of the very early markets. and. Um, Back in, in, in like 99, in 2000, like when we went, some of the earliest cops that we went, you know, that I was at, we literally, when we started the Emissions Trading Association, we had blood thrown at us by protesters that were like, you guys are evil selling pollution. And, and you know, first of all, I never resented the, uh, the protest because the needle was so far to the right with corporations doing whatever they wanted you need to have the left, you need to have people coming in to bend the needle back to the middle. So even though we wanted to come in saying, look at financial mechanisms can work, they were right that, you know, that, that there's danger, there's a, it's a double-edged sword. And we've seen that very much in crypto. We're going to have the same issue here. Um, in carbon, one of the biggest missteps we saw, uh, and I'm going to take some blame here, we had uh, HFC 23. So refrigerant HFC 22 was being produced in China, and, and a byproduct of HFC 23, which is just be vented. And I'm sitting in China looking for projects, and we're like, holy cow, look at this massive amount of a co-gas that's being just vented. So we're like, we, get, we need to go out there and finance this and stop this. And that became some of the biggest carbon projects 
The problem was once we, the Chinese producers realized they can make money off of carbon for, for um, destroying the byproduct, they created way more refrigerant than the market ever needed because <laughs> they were making so much money destroying the HFC 23. And, and these perverse incentives can happen quickly and, and, and the market needs to react. And we saw that come back to us in crypto where these HFC 23 credits that nobody would touch because they were toxic got thrown into Klimadev. So the point is, is that you're never going to get perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We need to have a moral compass and we need to have people here that are really trying to solve problems and not get rich. And it sounds like people who actually know what they're doing. Yeah. We also have that problem now. I mean, there was a case in the UK recently where a company that was getting subsidized because it was using wood chips instead of coal in their power was actually cutting down a forest to create the wood chips. Right. So, you know, we already have the problem of that that you've just described. And I agree, once you actually have it as a set unit of a tradable commodity or an asset, that becomes easier to short and, and all of that. But I think the argument has to be if the good that you can do outweighs the potential negatives, because if you don't do anything, we're heading for disaster, in my opinion. You know, something has to be done. And yes, there's always going to be shorting. The rhino's a great example. You know, rhino horns keep disappearing from police lockers as well, you know, for that exact reason. So, you know, there is always going to be that problem. But if the overall financing and products are doing what, in my opinion anyway, are as we said, we're all on the same car, we're in the same bus getting to the destination. I don't think we can avoid various people in, in the world shorting, people in China, in US, Africa, wherever, take, you know, these criminal organizations are gonna do it anyway. They're the ones responsible for the poaching in South Africa anyway. Poaching in South Africa now is rampant. You know, it is the worst it's ever been. 200 rhinos have been killed in one region alone this year. Um, you know, without the financing, without the support, nature's gonna die out anyway. So I think, I think we have to think about tokenization not just as an incentive mechanism, but as an accounting mechanism, especially in public ledgers. Like with you know, from my personal view, I think that every asset, especially when we're creating something in the voluntary market, should be unique. We should be able to understand it to its place with all of its attributes. But on you know, liabilities, things like emissions or damages to nature, those also should be unique to their place even if sometimes quantities like greenhouse gases emitted can be you know, pretty large. And tokenization doesn't just mean something that can be traded, but can be used as a unit of account to understand where we are in our public balance sheet. Just because we hold a dollar at a company doesn't mean that, that we're gonna do, when we account for it, we're trading it. Understanding the damages that are inflicted upon nature, whether it's from a conservation perspective or another form of biodiversity, or something more in the, more attuned to the carbon markets that we're used to accounting for, like greenhouse gas emissions, maybe in a more standardized way, that can be tokenized. And I think we should be careful before we go to trade something that we understand what the implications of trading are, but there is a very positive element of accounting for these assets on public ledger. And, and I say assets, especially when it comes to biodiversity, because these are oftentimes not just our global carbon sinks, but biodiversity brings many other benefits that impact the rest of the SDGs. Before we wrap up, we're going to end this episode and then sort of talk uh, off the Chronicles in a few moments. Benoit, I'd love you to give us a little bit of a view of a, a final missing piece here, which is the idea of forwards. I know that Vera is working on ideas around something akin to a carbon forward. Talk to us about how that is a piece of the puzzle to help make this happen. 
Yeah, and we're hoping by January, but definitely within the first quarter of 2023, we're going to be launching our projected carbon unit. This is going to be a unit that will precede the verified carbon unit. This will essentially allow for carbon projects to have easier access to early stage financing. These projected carbon units based on the validation reports that a project will generate will be eligible for assigning a certain amount of projected carbon units to that project for which the project developer can sell those to corporates, investors, buyers. And once that project completes its verification reports, the verified emissions reductions or removals of that project would then enable for those projected carbon units to be converted into verified carbon units. Projected carbon units are not ex-ante credits. They cannot be used for making claims. They are simply a mechanism to allow for those carbon projects to receive early stage financing more easily. Yeah, that's gonna be something that historically for a lot of projects, they receive later stage financing. It's typically a lot of investment on project developers on the front end to be able to reach their verification, which is usually going to be year three, five, or 10, depending on the nature of the project activity type. And so being able to sell projected carbon units within their first year or two can substantially ease that financing gap. Great. And let's give and the last word to Brian on the African view from this, because we are in Africa. And I'm curious how you think this could impact a place like Kenya and, and the work that's happening around these things in, in your markets? What Benoit said has actually piqued my mind because it's quite an interesting uh, dilemma that we usually have. Access to financing is a very key challenge. So I was actually very curious for you just asked me to talk. I had like, a few questions for Benoit in terms of how that would look like because I feel what they're trying to do with providing uh, the PCUs will be quite important. So Benoit, I think just in terms of that, is are there any project types you're considering all doing project, your initial? All, all project, project types will be eligible for PCUs, and at, at what point of development will they be eligible to receive those PCUs? Once a validation report has been submitted by the project developer and the auditor. Okay, and will there be an option where, if new methodologies are being introduced, how long before after they get uh, verified by VVBs, will they be eligible to getting PCUs if the methodologies are accepted for you? But I'm asking that because they're interesting players who are doing things with smallholder farmers and biofuel within the country and are applying for the methodologies to be verified. And I'm just curious, should that happen? Will they be eligible for the PCUs at that point or does it have to be after your methodology has been, has been accepted for quite a while before you then get into the PCU problem? There's currently no conversation that's taking place about methodologies having to have a certain amount of maturity in order to be eligible for PCUs. The general thinking is that if a methodology is accepted by the VCS program, that that project activity type would be eligible for PCUs. Okay, okay, okay. So the danger of PCUs that the project receives significantly less value for, for them than they would do from an actual person. Well, but once it becomes verified, the value would go to probably the original value, right? So it might be a fraction of the value initially, and then once it converts, the value would go up. But is there a secondary payment? Are you buying PC? Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying, cards? because one thing I've, having spoken to some small is that they're often offered funding at very, very poor rates of return. 
you know, the funder knows they're going to get $20 credit or $10 credit and they're offering one or two. And the danger of PCU is exactly the same scenario. We'll give you the funding now, we'll get some PCUs, but in five years, we're going to make 3,000% from you. And the local small farmers may not see the value. That's why I was asking if there's any thinking around that. I think collaboration, there's something that he mentioned about the research they're doing on price discovery. And in my head, how I was thinking is, well, the, I don't know if this discussion has been had, because that will try to solve that issue. Uh, Absolutely. The pricing for that, because it is actually a key challenge where how, how will you correctly price that PCU? But I feel from the conversation we've had, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. It also feels like, and I guess I've mentioned this, I think it's got to be a security. I mean, you're talking about commoditized, so you're, you're creating a contract for it, and it's, it's against future work by somebody else. Let's look at the Howey test, that, that is a commodity. That, that is a security, excuse me. That is not a... That, you know, using regulatory concerns right now. That brings in a raft of regulations. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I, I won't get into the... I, I don't know how many folks are lawyers around the table. I know I'm not. But the, the, point, I, the thing I do want to point out, though, is that exactly what you said. I think it's really important that we consider how folks are paid and how folks are doing the work in every credit that's created and whether it has a PCU in front of it or not. It's so important that the world that we build pays folks doing the work, not just folks with financial access. Right. So we try to create systems that enable that, but we can't enforce it. Right. We can't, we can't enforce it through law by, by any means, but what we can do and this is, I think, the power of Web3 and bringing the balance sheet of the planet to the public ledger is an attribute doesn't just have to be an environmental attribute. There can be social components to that, particularly around how folks get paid. And with new price discovery mechanisms that actually consider that is part of the balance sheet rather than oversimplifying and creating a model where we're just looking at a methodology and a verifier and saying, well, as a corporation, I don't. I don't have any more information or it's too hard to get this information or I don't have a million dollars to do due diligence. But if we have a system that can actually evaluate all the different metadata and how we got to that point, all the attributes, and it's publicly available, publicly visible, it gives us a new opportunity so that when someone's at a large corporation, they can say, all right, I understand the environmental attributes. I understand the social attributes of this credit. I understand that when we put a dollar towards this project, $10, $100, $1,000, a million dollars, that we are not inflicting damage on the people doing the work and s subjecting them to a system that doesn't think about them first. Because the more we put money into individuals that are not getting paid for the work that we do, the more injustice that we are spreading. And I think the industry spreads in the world absence of Web3. That's required under the Paris Agreement, actually. So that's not, that's not a, it's not a wannabe like it was under Kyoto where we didn't look at it. And that was one of the big problems with Kyoto is we didn't actually recognize anything beyond carbon. But I'll just say, the idea that there's other attributes, the whole natural capital stack of a carbon credit is not a new concept. That's not a new concept. For, for a Making it But it hasn't been deployed or executed? Yes. Well, I, I mean, I have to say, I'm sorry, but not, not tokenized, but I've been trading carbon for 25 years. And we've been defining the natural capital stack between water rights and biodiversity and other things a long time before that. Now, yes, once we really defined the sustainable development goals, we made it more clear and it became easier. There still are not great metrics on it and, and there still needs to be work. And I, I'm, I'm just saying that like, it, it's been around. We need to do a better job of it. And it's actually required. 
Right. I'd, I'd like to just say that Vera has two other programs in addition to the VCS. It's got the Sustainable, Deverifi Sustainable Development Verified Impact Standard, SD-VISTA, which can assign labels to both carbon projects uh, to the credits themselves for various kinds of social or additional environmental impacts that it has beyond carbon. There's also CCB, the Climate, Community, and Biodiversity Standard that Vera has as well, which can add additional labels to these kinds of products. Vera does not does not price VCUs, and it's not going to be pricing PCUs either. Those are those are determined by the market. So. Our goal is just to try to develop vehicles that can allow for that financing to take place. The moral compass continues to sit in the hands of the buyers and the people in and making those transactions. For me, that's the biggest challenge is, to, to the point earlier, how do the people that this is supposed to benefit and are doing the work actually receive the funds? Because you know, we did a project when I was at Dust Aid that built an internet cafe in Malawi. And, and when someone mentioned it earlier, do, do they have mobile phones? Do they have a crypto wallet? Do they have access to the internet? I mean, the short answer to all of that is no. So you're effectively at some point, you know, trusting in this case, it was the head of the project, you know, are they going to disperse the funds? I think the key is how do you get, you can tokenize anything in reality. Yes, there's regulation in certain things. Yes, it's actually some of these ideas have been around a long time. I mean, even in crypto, we've been talking about tokenizing things for, for five or six years, but does that actually help the people it's supposed to help? And this has been the argument in crypto for, for a few years now. Is it actually working as it's intended? And for me, that's the biggest challenge. How do you, if there is a, you know, a tribe in the Amazon or if there is some people in Kenya, how do you actually, that are protecting something or growing something, how, how do they actually benefit? How do we know we're not just going to go back to the way it is in Web2, where a few tech companies get all the money and they give a few dollars to, to the people? actually on the land. For me, that's the biggest challenge. Well, Duncan, I think that is a great note for us to wrap up this episode of The Chronicles uh, with the, the mission forward, which is making sure that whatever is done on tokenization actually benefits the people doing the work. I think we need the data to be able to understand how all this can fit together and to make it liquid. But if it's not actually helping the people on the ground, and if it's not actually saving that rainforest in the Congo, what's the point? For the Hub Culture Chronicles in Sharm El Sheikh at COP27, we're at the Hub Culture Climate Pavilion with Hedera and a number of other partners. Find more podcast episodes and conversations from Egypt wherever you get your podcasts and on hubculture.com. You can also check out news stories, articles, and events happening here in Sharm El Sheikh at our website. Thanks for joining us, guys. It's been a really fascinating conversation and wishing you a productive rest of COP27. Thank you.